Crown Book isn't just superficially committed to Essie Cranbordiri. I think that it actually lives it, and my impression right throughout my life has been that Crown Book was a, a more evolved school from the point of view of looking at the whole man. You are listening to the Cranbrook Living History podcast series. I am your host, Dr. David Thomas. In this episode, I speak with Cranbrook Foundation Director and Old Cranbrookian Anthony Abrams from the class of 1962. Anthony emphasizes the transformative impact of his Cranbrook education, how it saw him trigger the apartheid debate in Australia when questioning our country maintaining sporting ties with South Africa and through to his career working as a lawyer in Paris. Good morning, Anthony. Morning, thank David. You, thank you for coming uh, along this morning. As I said to you a minute ago, I have been looking very much forward to, um, to doing this interview, and uh, I look forward to your answers and you know, just sharing your uh, part of, of your history with, with us as part of Cranbrook School. Great pleasure. You were here at the Cranbrook between the 50s and early 60s, and obviously... Um, was the part of the beginning of your rugby career. Could you please uh, tell us how playing at Cranbrook deepened your love for the game? Well, first of all, I was at Cranbrook for 15 years. I started mm. off in St. Michael's at age three and left at 18. Um, so, so, so what year did you start? In uh, 1947. My involvement in rugby was typical of, of Cranbrook. We, you know, started rugby it wasn't quite typical uh, in the sense that I was um, able to avoid religion. I don't know whether that's done at the religious class uh, with a fellow called Michael Ball, who unfortunately died quite a long time ago, in order to be in the under 10 A's team instead of waiting another year when so we were eight and a half in the 10 A's team, both of us. But that was the only unusual thing about my experiences in my early years at Cranbrook. Um, I was captain of the teams, uh, the 11 A's and the the 12 A's, and then I think the 13 A's. And I loved rugby, but I loved a lot of other sports as well. I was very involved in swimming, for example. Mm. Mm. So was there anyone that you remember who influenced you with your rugby at school? Well, we largely had teachers who had varied degrees of rugby experience. Um, I remember one of my first was a Mr. McConville, who was um, in the junior school, and Guy Moyes, uh, who was head of the junior school, who was very keen on rugby and um, very keen on getting tackles right, I remember. Would, would you say that, as well as your rugby prowess, your moral development changed through these people or, you know, that developed? I mean, did they have an influence upon you in that area? I think it changed through the general influence of the school. I mean, it developed through the general influence of the school. Crownbrook isn't just superficially committed to Essie Cranbordiri. I think that it actually lives it. And my impression right throughout my life has been that Crownbrook was a, a more evolved school from the point of view of looking at the whole man. And I'm very thankful that I went to Cranbrook, particularly because I'd like to think that I've got a fairly strongly developed, I won't call it artistic side, but um, literary and spiritual side. And I think that that was catered to at Cranbrook much more than it would have been catered to at the other schools of the time. Can you think of something that, uh, or an incident where you may have spoken up against unfairness or 
irregularity? Did that sort of thing come out in your life at school? There was a general sense uh, that fair play should apply, and that, that, that prevailed both in relation to groupings and to individuals. And I subscribed to those ideals. Well, I can think of one, actually, which was an odd one, where I gave a, a doubled attention to somebody who commented in the house that I was head of, David, across the room to another boy uh, in relation to a situation that that boy's parents were involved in in the press at the time. I guess that was striking a blow for that ideal. That's good. That's good. Now, after you left, left Cranbrook, you, um, you played rugby at university under a number of people, including David Brockhoff. Yes. Uh, and, and he was uh, suitably impressed with your enthusiasm and commitment and willingness to learn. Uh, what do you attribute all those sort of qualities to in your life? Does, does that come from school, you know, the, the, that sort of commitment and things like that? Well, I think it, it, it always begins with the individual. I was probably pretty intense. In fact, um, so intense that I had a period of illness um, during my early teens, and I was away from school for quite a long time, about six months, as I, as I remember. But um, the positive side of that can be harnessed for positive activities, and I, I definitely think that Cranbrook played a massive role in, in the development of that side of my character, and also giving you an understanding of how far you can reach into yourself. Mm. Do, do you think, I'm um, just thought of something, just going back, um, do you think that Cranbrook was a, was a school in those years, and you've said this about the, the motto, but that people were treated equally and that, that equality was something that was important? Um, I think impliedly, yeah. I mean, we, it, it wasn't put before us every day of the week, but I think impliedly that was absolutely the case, yes. When I was selected for the Combined Associated School First 15, I also was acting that night as Brutus in Julius Caesar. Mm. Gilbert, Jones Gilbert Jones was the director, a marvellous man, a marvellous mm. director and a terrific French teacher. Mm. And two performances took place on the Friday and the Saturday night of the, uh, the Combined Associated Schools versus Combined High School Weekend. And so I had to act as Brutus on the Friday night. And I got knocked about in the game on the Saturday and couldn't, keep anything down for the performance on the Saturday night and Gilbert's wife kept dosing me with glucose in order to get through the performance. But the fact is that I think that Crownbrook prepared me to be able to face those two totally different experiences at the same time mm. under mm. considerable pressure. Obviously you impressed uh, a lot of people with your rugby talent, especially the Wallaby uh, selectors, and you joined the team in 1967, is that correct? That's right, yes. And uh, for for a number of matches, what was it at this time that drew your attention to possible discrimination in sport? Do you remember? Nothing at that particular time. It was only the prospect of being um, selected for the 1969 tour to South Africa that got me really thinking about it. Sydney University was um, going to tour California um, to play the universities of, Cal of Southern California and we were invited to the American Am Ambassador's Residence in Darling Point in early, in early January as a consequence of that. And there uh, was a, a young woman who was the daughter of an ex-US ambassador, Chip Charles Boland, who was a very famous Russian expert. And I saw quite a bit of a before we left for the United States. 
uh, and she prepared me for what was going on at that time, the huge turbulence in the universities and outside in relation to the Vietnam War. And when we got on campus, we saw all this, and it got me thinking about the issues of racism that we were going to be confronted with in South mm. Africa. And that's when I really started to read around the subject and to develop my position on that. Mm. Uh, when you were selected to go to South Africa, the University Students' Representative Council wrote to you and wrote to or everyone who was selected in that group. Uh, asking Signed you, by the future Mr. Justice Spiegelman. Oh, is that right? Who, yes. was, a, who was a friend of mine at the university. Yes. And, and a friend of mine too. And who actually um, was the one that signed that letter. But it was two weeks before we went, and it was cosmetic in the extreme. Um, mm. It wasn't expected to have any effect. Yes. But I was speaking um, at a few meetings at that time, being asked questions about this, including at the Wayside Chapel, and I said at the time why I was going, partly um, a, 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 as a result of the guys who were selected for the tour getting together, I got the university guys together one night after training and said, um, I'm thinking of not, not going. And they, at that time, naturally wanted to tour and weren't willing to go that far. And so I decided that if I made a stand at that point, it would be the brave and foolish gesture of one who didn't know. And I was advised by seven elders, if you like, in the community who I sought out and spoke to that I should go, with the exception of two, John Brink, who was an exiled South African, and Charles Perkins, the activist um, indigenous guy, a terrific fellow. But I, I, I never saw Charles Perkins again, but I'd like to think that he would have said that in retrospect I was right to go because I got so much more knowledge and can speak with so much more authority about the issue. He said I wouldn't go. Uh, because, and, I, and John Brink said the same thing, who was the exiled... Um, South African running a bookshop in Sydney and I think that they both thought that uh, once I got there the the possibilities of looking at the, the, the wider community and the distractions of the tour and the fact that you're flooded with hospitality would make me forget my initial zeal about the issue and that didn't happen in fact in South Africa it increased I interviewed a, I suppose interviewed as the word, a wide cross-section of people, including the very famous Progressive Party member of, South a of, of, the, of the Parliament, Helen Sussman, Lawrence Gander, the editor of the Round Daily Mail, who was on a charge at the time of publishing information about South African prisons, and Alan Payton, who wrote Cry of the Beloved Country, amongst many others. And um, so I got terrific access through the blazer, through the Australian blazer, to some of the prime movers in opposition to the apartheid regime and was able to hone my views about the issue. And, and but, you, but you still, you, you, you continue to play the tests except for the game against Rhodesia, is that correct? Uh, continue to play the tour matches. The tour matches, sorry. Except for the, I, I, I decided that because the Australian government was opposed to us going to Rhodesia, I would prefer not to be selected. Um, and I did say that to the team management who accepted it. Mm. Do you remember, you obviously remember what, what you saw in, in Rhodesia that put you off finally? Well, it was the Smith regime and their repressive policies and the fact that there was basically a war on with the, um, 
the uh, activist opposition. I have um, second thoughts about the logic of my position on that issue, because in South Africa, you were clearly confronted with the racist issue on the rugby field because you were required to play against racially selected teams, all white, in front of either completely white or mostly white audiences. In Rhodesia at the time, there was no outright legislation to entrench prejudice in that way. It wasn't the apartheid system. And so the logic of making a stand against them as a sportsman wasn't as clear as it was in South Africa. And so when you when you returned, uh, you wrote a letter to the Sydney Morning Herald about... No, I wrote it from South Africa. I oh, wrote it from South Africa. And it had the effect, I suppose you could say, of starting a horse race with a hand grenade, really. It laid out the compromise for Australia against the background of our none-too-proud um, policies on race, the white Australia policy, the, the, the treatment of Aborigines in mm. Australia. And so it impliedly said it's high time we thought all these things through and it's inappropriate for us to continue to play against South Africa. Did you ever speak to Gough Whitlam about these matters? I did. Mm. Um, not, I didn't converse with him, but I was taken up the front of the plane by Barry Cohen, who had um, backed our, our stand when I was out here campaigning. And Gough was, by that stage, the opposition leader, with Billy McMahon, the Prime Minister, and um, Barry introduced me, and I remember Goff saying, because I became a, friend, a sort of a friend of, the, well, a very strong friend of the Whitlam family, and a, a very strong acquaintance of Goff later, and he said, oh, this is the bloke, is it? <laughs> I, can, I can hear him saying that, yes. He, he must have taken on board what you said? Yes, he did. Not only that, but um, to such a degree that at, I, I flew out from, Aust from France to Australia for my 50th birthday, and and Goff and Margaret were there, as were all the Whitlam family, and I publicly thanked Goff for the stand that he made in support of us at that time. So you and, and some of your colleagues in, in rugby opposed the 1971 tour? That's right. South Africans? Six others, yes. Yes, six others, and you were two, quite, two, quite two united in that? Two other Cranbrookians. We're mm. very proud of that. Barry MacDonald and Paul Darvaniza. Mm. Indeed, Barry was the one of only two players, he and James Roxburgh, who were, strictly speaking, available to play against the Springboks in 1971 and refused to do so. The rest of us had either disappeared around the world or were not playing rugby. So they deserve special recognition for that. Mm. That must have been... Um a hard decision, but a well-thought-out one by that time. I don't think that it was all that hard for any of the seven, to be frank, because they had got to a point where the moral considerations totally outweighed the sporting issues. And so you're all united in that point of view, yeah, weren't you? Totally, totally. Foursquare, and we always have been ever since. Mm. So in 1991, you uh, supported the Australian team, obviously, at the World Cup. I did, And, and yep. you made certain, or you took certain actions for that. Well, Can you tell us about that? Well, I knew that Twickenham was going to swing, sing Swing Low, Tweet, Sweet Chariot, because it was England against Australia, and um, that they were going to belt out God Save the Queen. 
And I contacted Australian Business in Europe and said, how about us printing, it turned out to be 23,000 copies of the national anthem and handing about a Twickenham. And so I employed 20 young Australians through Australian Business in Europe's largesse. Um, and they were scattered around the ground and they handed out the, the leaflets and um, a lot of people, including the whole of the Scottish team, took those uh, leaflets and sang the Australian National Anthem. And, and in 2007, you joined a call for Cricket Australia to take action as well? In, in spite of the fact that um, there were no um, specific race issues intruding into um, the selection of the cricket team, obviously, no. a, a number of them were black, there was, um, and still is, such a repressive regime in place in Zimbabwe and the cruelty to members of the community who actively oppose uh, Mugabe and ZANU uh, is such that I thought that it was unacceptable for the Australian team to be playing cricket in that environment. So it would, would appear that, to me and to many others, that you have... Since the late 60s, you've stuck very closely to your beliefs and been very courageous about yeah. voicing them. Yeah, definitely. I've followed the script absolutely. <laughs> I haven't varied at all in my views. And, 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 I, you... and I do sheet that home to Cranbrook in a big way. Yes, do you? Yeah, unconsciously and consciously, I think, yes. Mm. Because that's uh, that, that sort of uh, conviction and perseverance those, those sort of things are very important to the school. I think that there was, just, the there, was just, there was just room in this school for the whole man. Yes, yes. Really? Yes, and I, I think in, in all the time I've been here, those sort of qualities are very, very important too. And as you said at the beginning of the interview about the us here at the school living our motto, yep. very, very important. And this is what comes through in, in your um, testimony and, and, and in your life. And and uh, the school is incredibly proud of you for, for being the person you are and taking the stand that you've taken. And well, it shouldn't be forgotten that there were three of us. It, no, it, it, Paul Darvaneser and Barry MacDonald It as won't well. be forgotten. And, and it's unfortunate that they couldn't be here today. Right. Now, after um, to the tour in Europe, you, uh, you went to Europe and played rugby, continued to play rugby? I rocked up at the racing club, which is now one of the Heineken Cup clubs. Jeez. It's called Racing Metro and um, said I would play for them if they found me a job in a law firm, and they did. And um, I couldn't practice French law, but Gilbert Jones had sufficiently prepared my French 10 years before for me to be able to be taken on as a translator from French into English mm. of legal texts. I pity the clients who received those, <laughs> who received those, those, those <laughs> translations, but I worked it out with the help of a dictionary and going to the Alliance Francaise every morning for the first six months, and then finally I ended up staying 24 years in France. What a fascinating conversation with Anthony. I hope you will continue with me on this journey as we delve into the memories of Cranbrook School and the many people who are connected with it. Be sure to join me next time on the Cranbrook Living History podcast series.